What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. to take a look around the NFC North. We stop with the Green Bay Packers as we go to NFL Nation reporter Rob Domofsky, who covers the Packers like a blanket for ESPN.com. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, right here on ESPN 1000. Rob, I appreciate it, man. How's everything? Uh, we're hanging in there. How are you guys doing down there? We're good. We're good. They're hanging in there. Everything's safe good. with you and your family throughout all this? Yes, yes. Knock on wood. No, good. That's really good. I want to get your thoughts, Rob, about the offseason for the Packers. Anything in particular, what stands out most about the offseason draft and free agency uh, for you here that says that maybe the Packers can take another step? Well, it's got to be the quarterback, uh, Jordan Love. I don't mean, usually when I say the quarterback, it's Aaron Rodgers. In this case, as you know, they made, I think, one of the biggest stirs in in the draft by uh, taking, you know, the, the most likely heir apparent when, um, you know, Rodgers has said that he wants to play at least four more years, which is what his contract is. And considering they were coming off a 13 and three NFC championship game season. So, uh, you know, if you sat here and you said, are they a better team than they were last year? Are they worse or are they the same? Um, I would probably lean toward the same. I, I, it's hard to say that they're better because they didn't really add any, major impact players that you think will help them right away. Any comments or thoughts from Aaron Rodgers about all this here in the offseason? Yeah, Rodgers, uh, the last time that we heard from him, Jonathan, I believe was oh, a few weeks before the draft. Uh, he was on ESPN um, Wisconsin, and he was asked specifically about what he would think if they were if they took a quarterback in the first round, and he basically said that he'd be fine with it. Uh, now, it's easy to say that when um, it hasn't happened. Uh, he's been radio silent since it has, so I guess we don't really know. Uh, but I, I, the biggest shocker to me was not that they took a quarterback, but that in rounds two or three they didn't come back and take a receiver um, and really give Rodgers something that he, I'm sure, felt like would help him right away because obviously um, you know, having Jordan Love pick doesn't help him Right now, it reminds me a lot of what Favre would say, um, you know, in the last couple of years in Green Bay when they picked Rodgers, they picked a defensive tackle. He basically was like, how does this help me right now? So, um, you know, that's the biggest thing I think that, that stands out is just, you know, are they doing everything they can to get over the hump and, and make another run in the next couple of years, uh, you know, with, with Rodgers? And, um, you know, you can look at it a couple of ways. You could say, well, they they think they're pretty good because they were 13 and three and they were right there or they don't think they were very good. So they're building for the future. I, I guess you could look at it both ways. Rob Domofsky covers the Packers for NFL nation. He joins me, Jonathan hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Rob, you and I have not talked about this in the past. Now this thought, this would be a great time to talk about 
the similarities or differences in football philosophy from Gutenkunst to yeah. Ted Thompson when he was the GM? What, what what's, what's the big difference or something similar to both regimes? Uh, there, yeah, it's a good question. There are some definite similarities, but there's some key differences either. As you know, Ted Thompson was really averse to free agency, and the, and the free agency did sign typically were guys you know later in their career that didn't have a lot of options you know from other teams. I mean, you, you think about Charles Woodson um, when they signed him here in '06. You know, this was really like it was like here or Tampa, and Tampa wanted him to play safety, and he wanted to play corner, so he came here. Julius Peppers at the time he signed here didn't have a ton of, of options. Um, you know, Martellus Bennett, one of the last free agent signings he made, it turns out to be a disastrous one, didn't have a lot of options when he signed here. Uh, Gutekunst um, went big last year with younger free agents, Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith, of course, Adrian Amos, you guys know, the former Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, this year he had to go a little bit uh, more conservative and, and didn't spend as much money, but he is definitely more willing to dive into free agency than Ted Thompson was. On the flip side, he is—he uh, has not changed the philosophy of drafting receivers high. Uh, the last time the Packers drafted a receiver in the first round was Javon Walker in 2002. Uh, Gutekunst obviously has not taken one uh, in the first round in his three drafts. In fact, he hasn't taken one higher than the fourth round. Uh, he also has said many, many times that he knows finding quarterbacks is the most important thing, or at least he believes that. And, uh, you know, he, he has shown that. He worked for Ron Wolf, who uh, obviously made the trade for Brett Favre. He worked for Ted Thompson, who, who picked Aaron Rodgers um, when Rodgers sort of fell into his lap in the 05 draft. And he, he knows he, his legacy is ultimately going to be judged on whether he can find a quarterback, Jonathan, that can give this franchise another decade plus of stability, and and I think that's why he made the move with Jordan Love when he did. So, so maybe Gutenkunz sees the window closing on the Packers' chances to another championship under Rodgers. Is that how you would you characterize I mean, it like that? Yeah, you can't. I mean, you can't rule that out. Although, um, you know, Rodgers himself said right after the Forty ers game, uh, the loss that he how excited he was that he thought the window was still open for several more years in part because of some of the big free agents that Gutekunst signed last off season. So it's a little bit of a mixed message. Um, but the one thing that he, he has said, he being the GM that he has to weigh both short-term and long-term consequences. If, if you were in a situation where you had a coach and general manager who were one and the same, I highly doubt they would have taken Jordan Love or any other quarterback in the first round this year. But maybe that's the argument for separating the, the two jobs because you have to have somebody that can think both short-term and long-term. You know, Rob, I know it looks different from your seat when you're covering this team on a daily basis, but when I'm watching Packers 49ers in the regular season in the playoffs, yep. it, it's it's like the Packers not even on the field. It's almost oh, I it's, agree. It's, yeah, like, it's, like the, it's like the Lions yeah. or the Bears playing San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, I'm just... No, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I thought... <laughs> um, you know, it was they're not. It wasn't even. It wasn't even the same ballpark. And you know, I, I remember we a bunch of us asked Gutekunst after the season, "Do you do you have to sort of tailor your team now to try to beat the 49ers? Because if if you remember, Jonathan, this was back in the '90s when I first started covering the team. Mm-hmm. The Packers couldn't beat the Cowboys in the mid '90s. I mean, they lost to them before they broke through and won, and won their Super Bowl in '96. 
I think they lost to the Cowboys three straight years in the playoffs, if I'm not mistaken. And Ron Wolf was basically saying, we, we've got to figure out a way to beat these guys. We can't beat the Cowboys. You know, Gutekun said basically that, hey, look, you know, the, the, whoever the best team is might change from year to year, so you can't just focus it on one team. He might be right. But, you know, they, they got run over um, by that team. I mean, the 49ers beat them in the playoff game by passing it only eight times. I mean, that's just incredible to me. So um, I thought maybe, you know, they'd address some of the middle of their defense and, and maybe shore that area up a little bit because their pass rush is good. Uh, but when you spend all that money on pass rushers and then a team basically says we're not going to pass the ball, um, what are you going to do? By the way, Rob, here, here's something that no one asks you a lot about. What, what's your what's your gut feeling on McCarthy in Dallas? You think that's going to work? That's a great question. I, I'm a little surprised, Jonathan, that he's not calling the plays. Yeah, and you know he's he when he gave up the play calling in 2015 here, and it lasted 12 weeks. By week 13, he took it back, and he said at that time he goes, "As long as I'm not, or as long as I'm a head coach, I'll never not call plays again." Well, you know, he's in a different situation with a different team, but here he is not calling plays. And you have to wonder if that's his call or, or Jerry Jones's call. Because um, the Mike McCarthy I know, A, is pretty darn good at play calling and game planning and that, and B, is, is, is so um, strict on not giving it up that I wonder. You know, I really do wonder. He's got a great situation there, though. I mean, they've got a ton of talent on the offensive side of the ball. And then they and they added to it. I mean, I, I tweeted this right when uh, the Cowboys picked C.D. Lamb. I said, in 13 years in Green Bay, uh, no, uh, Mike McCarthy never got a receiver in the first round. His first year in Dallas, he has one. So, yeah. and it's and it's not like they were thin at receiver uh, to begin with uh, with the group that they have. So. He's going to have plenty of offensive weapons to play with. That's for sure. I like that McCarthy is like the mo- like the 18th most interesting thing about the Cowboys so far. I know the season isn't here yet, but <laughs> yeah. uh, all, all the stories about the draft, and free agency, and Jerry on the yacht, and Stephen Jones, and yep. you know, you, but you know, know what? It, that's the way McCarthy liked it because yeah. here's the thing: like up here, he got tired of having to be the face of of everything up here. I mean, Ted Thompson would never talk. I mean, he, he was. He would always he would do his the bare minimum media, um, you know the the team president they don't have an owner so team president Mark Murphy tried to you know stay in the background so McCarthy had to going back to the Favre decisions about you know when when they were trying to basically talk him into retirement those even, weren't even his decisions and he was having to answer that those questions it wore him down so in a lot of ways he kind of got what he wanted he, I mean it's gonna he's gonna have to deal with controversy because every time jerry talks there's a chance he could say something outlandish but uh part of it is the pressure's off him a little bit you know because he's got an owner that that is so much in the forefront that's kind of yeah it's cool for him for sure uh anything rob in the nfc north that interests you i I was saying earlier about i thought the vikings had the best draft one of the best drafts in the nfl if not alone the the nfc north um you know that there's going to be improvement with the lions people say the Lions are going to improve well yeah i mean a healthy staffer would get them at least six seven wins maybe at max and then it's the bears off season you know what's going on here the controversy over over graham you remember you saw graham up close and now he's with the bears i'm really yeah yeah i'm really surprised that anybody paid graham that kind of money because he just to me he looked like he was over the hill washed up but the interesting thing about the Vikings 
and Lions, if you, if you ask me, Jonathan, both of those teams lost Pro Bowl-type players, right? I mean, the, the, the Vikings lose Stephon Diggs, and yes, they replaced him with a receiver in the draft, but are you telling me Justin Jefferson's going to be what Stephon Diggs is automatically? I'm not so sure. Uh, Detroit, they lose Darius Slay, right? Pro Bowl corner, and their first pick is Jeff Okuda, a corner. But, but you know, are they just filling holes or are they getting better? It's hard for me to say that those, guys, those teams got better with those picks because, yeah, they picked great players, but they already had great players in those spots. If I'm the Bears and you can get the quarterback thing figured out, whatever it is, whether it's Trubisky, you know, finally playing like they think he can or the new guy being – you know what? What they hope he can. If you're if you're the Bears, you kind of have to think. You know, everybody else has kind of plugged holes and, and maybe stayed even. Maybe we had to have a chance to get better. So, um, if I'm looking at it from their standpoint, I'm thinking that um, you know that that, that I, if I'm the Bears, I, I think I have a real chance to make a big jump if we can get the quarterback thing figured out. And obviously, that's a big if. Generationally, that's the problem, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that's why Foles is here, right? I, I love that Foles yeah. is here because you know, it, people, already in Vegas, it's the Lions are favored to beat the Bears in Game One. Now that you know, that's going to be trouble, right? If that happens, Bears lose against the Lions, Game One is going to be trouble right into the Giant game. So well, you know, it's kind of fun though that I mean, assuming things go on schedule, you got the NFC North playing each other of the Packers at Vikings week one. Um, yeah. I, I think I saw the Vikings are a three and a half point favorite. Uh, now the, the Packers did win there for the first time in that new building last year. They won at Minnesota. So um, if, if we're lucky enough and fortunate enough to get football right away, man, week one, it's going to be great right from the start. Uh, lastly, uh, so uh, what do you think of the, the Packers schedule? And And the other thing I think about Rob is, if we're starting the season without fans, yep. like that affects the one loss record because fans still matter yes. despite your X's and O's, right? Well, especially if you look at the Packers' first two road games at Minnesota, loud, loud, loud. At New Orleans, louder than mm-hmm. loud. Uh, so you know they, they could be they could benefit from that. The Packers' beginning of their schedule, Jonathan, is brutal. They have uh, three of their first five on the road. And those road games are at Minnesota, at New Orleans, like I mentioned, and then at Tampa with Tom Brady. So it's, um, you know, there's a real possibility that they could be like, you know, three and three, four and four, halfway point. Now, the back half of the schedule is in their favor. Um, They've got a lot of games at home. Um, They've got cold weather games. Uh, Even the road games are cold weather. You're starting in Chicago uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So um, if they can weather the storm early, you know, I still think they have a chance to be pretty good, but you know, we'll find a lot out about the Packers early on. At that, their Week Eight game then is Thursday night at San Francisco. So, um, you know, their road schedule is brutal the first half <laughs> at San Francisco. And as Aaron told you, you know that playoff game would have been different. It was in Lambeau. That's what he says. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> three times they'll have to play at San Francisco three times in. Basically, eleven months. So um, they were zero and two there to start, and they and like you said, they weren't even close. Yeah. Well, Rob, I'm glad you spent some time. We haven't talked in a while. I just want to get your thoughts on the schedule and uh, what we can look forward to from the Packers standpoint. Yeah, it's great to be with you, and uh, hopefully, we're back to football soon. 
Absolutely. Rob Domofsky from NFL Nation covers the Packers for ESPN.com with us right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. It's Last Dance Mondays brought to you by Coors Light. And we have a standing appointment with my friend Nick Friedel from ESPN and ESPN.com. He joins me here on ESPN 1000. We talk about the last dance. Nick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Always, my man. Boy, that was, uh, once again, every time we look around, every Sunday, it's really something great. It's something that we learn about the Bulls and Jordan's mentality. Hoodie, I thought those were the best two episodes yet. Uh, and I know that the people who had watched one through eight, because nine and ten are still the last finishing touches are being put on those. They had all said, this is where the, <laughs> the drama really gets serious. And it's so intriguing because you and I have talked to so many people through the years, teammates, coaches, uh, Bulls staffers who had been there and lived the Jordan years. And, and that was, it was so honest, not just Michael's reaction, but those around him. Like, hey, he, he was uh, uh, a jerk. An a-hole. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was not sugar-coated. Uh, Judd Bushler's quote about the fear that surrounded MJ on a on a daily basis, and and nobody wanting to piss him off, and then you're, they're cutting away to those those clips of him just destroying Scott Burrell and, and Jordan talking about he wanted to try to fight him a few times. That was what it was like. And that was the real side that didn't get put out into the media at times because so many people were focused on, oh, got to be like Mike, he's the best, he's the greatest. You can't come at him uh, and and try to, to tarnish that image. So I really enjoyed those couple episodes. There were so many different layers to them, but... To me, that was that was one of the biggest takeaways was that the drive that pushed him to be so great as a player was what pissed off so many of his teammates. But they learned to appreciate later after winning all those rings. One of the best scenes to date that we see in the documentary, Nick, is just Jordan's veracity driven to tears about winning. How powerful was that scene toward the end of one of the episodes we saw on Sunday? Because I've never seen winning described quite that way where, yeah, you know, everyone wants to win. Somebody wants to win today. Somebody wants to be able to do something positive in their life for themselves or someone. But I've never seen winning um, is so demonstrative, so strong that it brings someone to tears. How, how interesting was that scene for you? I just kept watching it. I, I had to go back and forth a few times on the DVR hoodie. I'm going, was he really about to cry? Uh, and I'm looking at it going, wow. And to watch how the the episodes unfolded and to watch how the documentary uh, has, has been the last few weeks and then to see that, you're going, oh, okay. You know, now it all makes sense. Uh, now, 
now you know just what this uh, has has meant to this guy over time and just what makes him great. And uh, that was what was so intriguing for me is you're, you're waiting to see just what made him exactly what he was aside from the the most talented basketball player so many of us have have ever seen but it was that mentality uh, and you know that's what was so interesting last night to me hoodie is because they talked about when he retired and, and he went away and <laughs> how much happier the team was <laughs> with, with scotty uh being the the man in charge and and with him being able to call the shots and and being able to be there for his teammates on an emotional level that MJ wasn't. But uh, that's the trade. And when you are playing with that kind of player in that kind of moment, I thought Scott Burrell actually said it very well. He said, Michael was trying to push you to be like Michael. The issue is that only Michael can be Michael. That's it. He's the only one. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to try to push you to some different place. And uh, in the end, as much of a jerk as he he was, as much of a bully. I mean, Hoodie, that's really the word to me after watching those episodes. He was a bully. Uh, But he always got the last word because he always found a way to win. And that team almost always found a way to win. Uh, And... That was what was most impressive and will be most impressive throughout his career is that team, when all the chips were down, was 6-0 and in the finals, and he won six finals MVPs. And I don't see that being topped ever again. Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN.com. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Uh, let me talk to a, I don't know, like 10-year-old Nick Friedel. Is he there? Can we hear from a, a 10-year-old Nick Friedel? I need to talk to him. I mean, nothing. I mean, adult Nick Friedel is my, is my good friend. We're great friends. But I didn't, I didn't know 10-year-old Nick Friedel because young Nick, and we can see some of those pictures, by the way, on Nick's Instagram of him as a young Orlando Magic fan. Dude, let me tell you something. On the surface, before we dig into this, I want you to just maybe you weren't thinking about this as a as a kid, but as adults, you can look at Dennis Scott at six eight, Horace Grant at six ten, Shaq at seven one, Penny at six seven, and uh, Nick Anderson at six six. That's a humongous team that Brian Hill had. That's a that's a team. If it wasn't for the Jordan era. Uh, should have been able to win more than what they did. Should have stayed together because that's a monstrous line. Hoodie, that was a team that was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great point because when you've watched them, you understand that they were being built. John Gabriel was the, the longtime GM of the Magic. They were being built the way a lot of these teams are now. <laughs> and the only difference was that you didn't have guys – uh, down low in the case of of Shaq and Horace that could shoot it from the outside like so many big men uh, can and do now, but they didn't need to then. They had young Shaq uh, and, and prime Penny and Nick Anderson hoodie. I cannot stress this enough, and I know in Chicago people understand because Nick is from there and he went to Illinois, uh, and they have those memories. That is my all-time favorite player ever. Nick Anderson. People do not understand just how good he was because they focus on the free throws in the 95 finals. But he was 
unbelievable mm-hmm. on both ends. That is a guy who is just never going to get the credit he deserves because people don't remember what he did prior to that moment in his career. And it shouldn't be the defining moment because of all the other great things he did, as as that episode uh, that we just watched showed. But that was my childhood. Uh, and I, as I watched, I watched through the frame of that 10, 12-year-old kid who grew up in Orlando. Uh, who wore Horace Grant goggles to the game, who, <laughs> who remembered Shaq pulling into the arena a couple hours before and, like, the earth would shake <laughs> because mm-hmm. the music would be so loud and the subwoofer would be turned <laughs> to, you know, a 50, and you're going, up oh, Shaq's here. <laughs> like, this is awesome. So uh, that was just a really fun time in my childhood. That's what we did as a family. I mean, I had a, a little brother and my mom and dad, and, and we would go to games, and that's that's what we did uh, as a as a group. And so to watch that, that you realize in that moment, for me and, and longtime Bulls fans can understand this because you lived it with Michael in a in a different sense. There's only one time in a franchise's history that it goes from nowhere to the top really fast. Uh, and it happened a lot quicker for the Magic because of Shaq and Penny, but that only happens once. And no matter what happens after that, it's fun, and you're going to support your team. But you only see that once. And to be able to be there in Orlando where that that team put that town on the map and made it famous for something besides Disney was a really special time in my life. Really love seeing Horace Grant in uh, the Orlando Magic colors and just how (laughs) the Magic put Horace Grant on their shoulders. I mean, to, to do it at the United Center, right? You know, I mean, that was just so huge. And I was a fan of that Magic team just because... I mean, look at the star power. Look at the commercial appeal, right? I mean, it, you had Shaq and Penny doing commercials. You, you knew Dennis Scott was a special three-point uh, artist. Nick Anderson's from the crib, so you appreciate Nick Anderson. And then Horace Grant, a former Bull. I mean, uh, take me back to though that memory of watching the Magic because that's one of, that's one of their peaks right there that, uh, of that franchise, Shaq, Penny, and the others, where you have just solid players, no, no busters, in that lineup hoodie that team was beloved that city embraced that team the likes of which i have not seen before uh, and you know it, th- what it taught me in the moment is you have to enjoy what you're seeing because you don't know when it can end I mean, you'd go to those games, and they were, and you remember this, they were so dominant at home. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody would beat that team uh, at the old Orlando Arena, and that place was rocking. I, I mean, it was, it was so much fun to go to those games. I remember the, the PA announcer, who's still there, Paul Porter, they used to do like a, a New Year's Eve countdown on the Jumbotron, and they'd be like, the NBC cameras are going to be here in five seconds, let's show them what Orlando's all about. And the countdown would go down to zero and people would just go nuts because you're thinking, <laughs> we need to show them how loud and fun Orlando can be. And, I mean, it, it seems so naive now, but in the moment it, it was it was just awesome. But that it's so interesting to me because I had that experience with it as a fan. And you realize, again, how fleeting it can be because, boom, you're thinking the Magic are going to win titles. They just beat MJ. And then Michael comes back and he gets his body back in shape. 
and they just dominate the Magic in 96 in the Eastern Conference Finals, and then Shaq leaves, and it's gone, just like that. Yeah. And then I, I compare that to my experience as a journalist, because you're watching the Bulls when I started at that, the end of that first Vinny year and into the Vinny Del Negro second year, so like 2009, 2010, and you're thinking, Derek's pretty good, he's getting a lot better. And then Tibbs comes in, and, and you get Joe Keane as the defensive player of the year, and Lou Dang is playing his butt off, and they were so deep, and they had so much talent. And then, boom, Derek gets hurt. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, man, just like that, you know? Just like that, it can change. And so that Magic team was my first glimpse into, man, this is fun, and this is so awesome to see, but it can end in the blink of an eye. And then... Almost, you know, 20 years later or so, a little less than that, to, to watch that Bulls team that was so great and so much fun and made the UC come alive again like it did in the MJ days, to see it disappear like that was a reminder of what I've learned as a kid. Nick Friedel with us on Last Dance Mondays, brought to you by Coors Light with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So, Nick, on you get the, the Orlando magic story on one side. This is why this documentary is so good, because this all is a, a culmination of Jordan's revenge and what drove Jordan to win. So on the other side, we get we get one side is the magic, the other side is the Hornets story with B.J. Armstrong. That, slipped, that almost slipped past me. I'm like, oh, that's right. I forgot that BJ was on that team, right? But it was BJ. <laughs> BJ said that I know how to beat the Bulls, which is kind of funny, like, you know, on the surface. But then he's a vocal point to for one of the victories for Charlotte. What would you think of that part of it? Because I had never seen BJ, first of all, have a game like that in the NBA. And secondly, just his reaction. Just I had never seen him roar like that because he was never like that with the Bulls. Hoodie, that that primal scream is what stuck with me too. When he made that shot at the end of you know, game one or game two, whatever, at the beginning of the series, and yeah. he's screaming at, <laughs> at the Bulls. I mean, wow! I, that it, t- it showed me two things. It showed me one the the pent up frustration uh, that they can come when you have that professional divorce with the team and clearly I mean, bj talked about it i thought his quote was very honest as well <laughs> and when they're like was michael a nice guy and he's basically like no he wasn't a nice guy how could you be a nice guy and carry yourself like that all the time but two and this is what was telling as the kind of throughway storyline throughout the that episode all these guys wanted so badly to prove to to Michael that they were they were better than what he thought, and and he was so dismissive of so many over time. But BJ goes and has that fantastic game, and LeBradford Smith. Oh. I had forgotten that whole story. Oh. I mean, he has that game, but <laughs> but it just shows what it what it takes to to light the fire. And, and you you have to remember, and I thought that was, it was very intriguing listening to Michael. He's like, BJ just forgot that, <laughs> not, to, not to mess with, not to mess with the lion, basically. Don't piss off, don't piss off the, uh, the king. Because uh, that, that woke up, Michael woke up the bulls. And, and, and it shows another, it's a, it's a reminder of the greatness of MJ to me. Because all these guys have these moments in time. Uh, Gary Payton later on in in the episode talking about the the '96 Finals. Oh, 
you know, we were wearing Mike Lau, we were doing this and that. The point is, yeah, they would win a game, they would win two games. Every time during that stretch and that run, Hoodie, the Bulls won the, the series, aside from that little blip on the radar against the Magic when Michael was coming back from baseball. It was never about the game for Michael Jordan. It was always about the battle. It was about, always about the end. And that's why he is the best. And that's why he always came up, uh, out on top. Because if he did lose one of those little uh, moments in time, he always found a way to motivate himself to get it back and be the victor and have the final say. And that is the greatness of Michael Jordan. Because when the when they needed him to be Michael Jordan the most, he always found a way to be there and do it. So this will be the easiest question that you'll be asked all month. Um, a cooler starter jacket, Hornets or Magic? Oh my gosh! I, you know, my only, my only, <laughs> it, it's one. It's the magic for sure. But okay. my only regret, hoodie of of wearing that starter jacket so much is I should have had the foresight at a, a as a twelve, you know, thirteen year old Magic fan that was just in love with that jacket and that team to just. I should have just had my mom buy the extra ones as I was going to grow into them. <laughs> like, right. like buy the the large for a, a couple years later and the extra large and now in the double X when that gut gets a little bigger I mean I would have worn that thing now, <laughs> now. Worn the whole way now. so maybe I'll get on eBay and, and, and find find one that hasn't been used that much because that thing was awesome and anybody who had that magic starter jacket back in the day knows that I'm telling the truth. All right, well, let's, let's be careful on that magic jacket now. That doesn't work well in Oakland. Uh, let, <laughs> let's talk a little bit now and <laughs> let's be careful. I, I don't know. Hoodie, that thing was so cool that it might play in Oakland. I don't Even know. in Oakland, that uh, thing was so legit that it might work. I don't, I don't know, man. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 maybe when you come home, maybe you come to Chicago, maybe, but not... I I I I prefer you not to wear the magic jacket and that five point star out there in Oakland. That <laughs> that even play well here at times. Uh, I'm depending on what neighborhood you went in, but nonetheless. This is under the hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN One Thousand, Chicago's home for sports. Is under the hood. Listen to me. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Nick Friedel joining me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 as we do Last Dance. Monday's brought to you by Coors Light. Um, you know, Michael Jordan playing baseball... We have to look at the timeline closely with this. We saw the press conference. And by the way, um, I, I tweeted it out, and I still, it's amazing, the press conference when Michael retires the first time. You know it's big when Brokaw brings his 5.30 newscast to the to the Birdo Center. You know, he was there, and he was doing his newscast from there. Now, he's got world news and, and uh, news around the country, but he's there covering it. So it shows you how big it is. That's that's one, one of my takeaways. Like, wow, everybody's there. Never seen a media scrum like that before. I was not there for that, but I saw it on TV. But, uh, but the timeline, Nick, of Michael Jordan playing baseball after he retires from basketball. Now, you know, Reinsdorf, 
Jordan, others said, yes, this is what Michael's dad would have wanted because he wanted to play baseball. But at, but the one thing that resonates with me so much is Michael being so tired, right? Going through the Olympics and trying to get a third championships and just want to take a break and just all that kind of stuff, right? But he really didn't give himself a break. I mean, why, I mean if, I'm, if I'm him, maybe I take a year off. He went right into baseball almost seamlessly, did he not? He needed that competition hoodie, uh. Uh, and and I I think that's the it, it's the blessing and the curse of Michael Jordan because he always needed something to get him going even the in the face uh, the face of such a a personal tragedy uh, like losing uh, your father in that way I, yep. I I thought that the quote from I believe it was Mark Vansel who was the author of Rare Air. Uh, the book uh, that he and he and Jordan did years and years ago. His quote in the documentary uh, might have been the, the most interesting for me of the whole night because he's saying that the all the the, the stuff about the gambling and did Stern really uh, suspend him for eighteen months and some kind of secret suspension? He's like, he, I just laughed at that because he said Michael told me. A year before, so this is the summer of 92, this was when the Dream Team and the Barcelona Olympics were going on, he told me, I'm going to shock the world, and I'm going to quit and go play baseball. And then he's like, you're going to go do it uh, in a year? He's like, i do it now, but, uh, you know, uh, Magic and Bird never never won three in a row, and, and I'm going to go do that, and then I'm going to quit. And I was like, what? I, I, I had never heard the story because the only story I had ever heard was he had always wanted to play baseball, but then his father passed away and he went, well, I, I, I'm just burned out on all this stuff. And it's, and it's very clear watching the, all, all the episodes that, that he was totally burned out. And, and this speaks to the emotional burnout that comes with winning at that kind of level and hoodie uh, i i can attest to that having watched this warriors group the steph kd clay draymond group last year they're just emotionally burned out after all the years of winning and all the scrutiny and all the pressure but with a point with michael is when you watch and you hear that and you think well he knew this all along all that attention and all the drive it takes to be at that level, it can wear even the greatest out. And that was the takeaway because that story about knowing he was going to walk uh, in 92 going into the 93 season was something I had never heard before. This is going to be some rough waters here, Nick. So I, I, this is no, there's really no answer to this question, but I'm just going to just bring this up about James Jordan. This is... Um, this is uh, it was difficult to watch because you saw James Jordan. He was always there in Michael's um, corner. You know, he was actually interviewed more often than I thought uh, watching the documentary. You saw him at games, but, you know, you saw how he was going to step in for Michael and speak for him sometimes. And then gave just his, his overall thoughts because he was someone that was very thoughtful about the game and watching his son play, you know. The question is, there's no real answer to it, but just what I was thinking is like, did the killers of my, of James Jordan know who James Jordan was or was this random? It's so difficult to know, is it not? It, it's incredibly difficult to know, Woody. And as a as a fan growing up and uh, as as somebody who uh, has kind of watched this 
unfold from uh, a distance for so long, you want to believe that it was just random and and that there was nothing more sinister to it because uh, it's just, it's brutal. Uh, It's awful. Uh, and, And that's the hope. But I know that people have been wondering about the this exact question that we're discussing for years and years and years and and the documentary went into this a little bit and and again at face value you want to believe that this was just purely random and and it's just terrifying and you you just feel awful uh, for for michael and his family on a human level but uh, on, on top of that question what struck me there was a quote from tim howell who's been the the Bulls PR uh, director for 40 years at this point. And Tim says in there, if you knew Michael, you knew James, meaning that 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 was his running buddy and that was his his best friend. And when you have that loss and and the only other person that seems to be in that inner circle in that way uh, for Michael is is George Kohler, his, his longtime driver and confidant, but when you have that loss and you lose your father and you lose your best friend all at once, it just explains so much on top of the wanting to go to baseball and, and talking about that, that final conversation uh, that he had with his father before his passing was about going to baseball. It just it it can just totally, totally mess you up. Uh, and and I, I speak from experience with that. When you have a, a sudden loss of, of your father, yep. you, you, you just you, you're you're all over the place, and you, you can't think as clearly as you want. And the ramifications of that uh, are something you deal with, frankly, the rest of your life in, in varying degrees. So uh, as I watch that part of it, and this goes back to the original question, it, it always. You want to you want to believe and know that it's it's legitimate uh, and it's awful and there was nothing more behind it. But on a on a more basic personal level, no matter what Michael did from that point on, I understood in this sense because when you have that kind of loss, you're trying to find answers from all over the place uh, as to what's next in your own life and. And everything that followed made more sense, knowing just how close they were. Yeah, it's very well said. I just um, it's it's always just in the back of your mind. It's so unfortunate that it happened. He pulls over to the side of the road because he's tired, and then that happens. And the way that he was killed when he, his body was found, it just it's just uh, really awful. Um, so let's talk about your guy, Scotty Pippen. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, you know, Nick, you talk about someone that's complicated. Now, again, we'll go back to what we talked about before where I know, you know, it's great that you work on the jump with Scotty and you can you have a somewhat of a, a working relationship with him. But um, the, the compliment sandwich is a top 50 player of all time, but very complicated, almost to the point where he believed that he was as big or bigger than the team, bigger than Michael when he first came uh, out of Central Florida. But. You could tell that he settled in from his time with Houston and Portland where he was not as demonstrative. There is so much to this, Nick, where you appreciate him being a great um, player with Michael Jordan. But throughout this documentary, this tells you the story of 
you know, how, how Scotty didn't want to go back in the game because the, the play was designed for Tony Kukoc, that where Bill Cartwright is is in tears telling him after the game how wrong he was, Kerr telling that story. You know, yeah. <laughs> Nick, he, he, had, he had some some real issues. It wasn't even authority. It's just his belief that he was bigger than what he was. was it seemed almost like where Scotty was fighting for respect. He was already great. Did he even know that he was great? Hoodie, I, I think it, that is uh, a very good outline. And on top of what you just said, I'd add, I think Scotty's still fighting for respect. But he's still great, though. Like he's he, I, a top fifty player. He was with. He was the Rodman to George Batman. He was great. Right, and and I think that what what hurts Scotty, and we've seen it. And Jackie McMullen wrote a nice piece on ESPN.com a few days ago. And, and what's really upset him in the wake of of this uh, this documentary is people are not giving him not only the respect that he feels he deserves at this point, and, and that goes straight to Michael, who <laughs> called him selfish when the rest of the team was like, yeah, we understood what Scotty was, was doing. But, but I think that for so long, and this speaks to him coming into the league believing uh, that he was at a certain level and realizing that he had to play uh, that, that second fiddle in, the, in that backseat role to MJ. For so long, he thought he was so, so much better than the outside world thought he was. Uh, and, and that has been a common theme for years and years and years as i watched last night the hardest part for me is somebody who uh, really likes scotty a lot and has an immense amount of respect for him was when they asked him about the the coup coach shot and sitting on the bench and scotty has so much pride and hoodie you know this having covered him for so long in chicago that is what has defined his career that's what pushed him to be the player that he was because because of that pride, because of the ability to to want to prove people wrong and show them that he was better uh, than what they believe, but that pride is what is not allowing him <laughs> even in the, in in present day to say, "Hey, you know what? I messed up, and if I could do it all over again, I'd handle it differently." He's he said, "If I could do it all over again, I'd probably do it the same the way. same way." <laughs> and, and you're like, "Whoa!" Yeah, well. Now, well, I thought Steve Kerr's comments were very honest uh, and blunt. He's like, Scotty quit on us. And that he's not going to be able to erase that. It, it's just never going to be something that he can run away from. Uh, and to Scotty's credit, he's still answering the question about uh, not running from it, even if you disagree with him. The part I would add is uh, what has come through in the documentary is that as complicated as Scotty is, and as much pride as he is holding on to, both in that story and several others, what becomes clear, not only listening to his old teammates, but talking to them now, Scotty was beloved. Beloved. Is still beloved. It was just this moment of time where they kind of went, what is going on? And they talked about it last night, but Scotty Pippen on that team was the guy as far as the one that everybody else would rally around and and michael was michael and he led them to where he did but scotty's the one that uh, they've all come to the defense of knowing 
how sensitive he can be at times. And I think that's a really uh, fascinating part of the last few weeks because these guys all know Scotty. They respect Scotty, and they've stood up for him uh, when when he's been hurt by some of the things that have come out because you're talking about old wounds that have been opened that have been stuck for 20-plus years at this point. Last question regarding Scotty Pippen. Scotty's demeanor as a as a leader more like Kevin Durant or Jimmy Butler? Ooh. Scotty's demeanor as a leader. I would say Scotty's demeanor uh, shadows more of Durant hoodie. Because I'll tell you whose leadership demeanor uh, <laughs> shadows more like Michael. It reminds me a lot of Michael Jordan. And let me be very clear. They are not the same player. They are not at the same level. Not close. But the leadership aspect of what I have watched in this documentary, watching and listening to what Michael Jordan is is saying and what his teammates are saying about him, that reflects right in line with Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan last night, Hoodie, said in that documentary that... He would never ask a teammate to do something that he hadn't done himself. I, this is this is a little inside baseball, <laughs> Chicago style. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you who that reminded me of. It was Jimmy Butler, and Jimmy idolizes Michael Jordan. He repped a shoe company for several years, and I've talked to him about it over the years. But what pissed off Jimmy Butler more than anything else on those Bulls teams over the last few years before he got traded? It was that he didn't feel that his teammates were putting in the same amount of work that he was. What pissed off Jimmy Butler in Minnesota? It was that Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins weren't putting in the work he felt they needed to to be great. And the same issues came about uh, in, in Philadelphia to a, a little bit of a lesser extent. But that is the common theme for Jimmy. It's why he fits the way he does in Miami because of that culture. But those quotes from Jordan in saying that I'm putting in this work and everybody else around me should be trying to raise their level and I'm going to push them to that point. That right there is absolutely the, the ethos that, that Jimmy Butler lives with on a daily basis because he feels like he has carved out this niche for himself in his career and he has carved out uh, a way for him to be one of the best two-way players in the game. Why can't everybody else work as hard as I can? And uh, he's not the same player that Michael is, but he has the same mentality. And anybody who has watched him over the years and listened to him, they'll tell you the same thing. My friend, uh, we can do this next Monday as they wrap up the documentary. It's been compelling. Can't wait for uh, this upcoming Sunday so we can talk about it. I look forward to it every week, my man. Nick Friedel with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.